Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to yet again another fantastic indie creator interview. It's your Cape Crusader Cody, and we are keeping it geekly with our new friend, B. Claymore. We're here to break down the whistling skull and everything in between. And B, welcome to the stream. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. It's uh, it's earlier than most of these, so it's noon here, so uh, <laughs> means I'll have uh, some, some day left over. So Yeah, we were talking uh, backstage, and I myself have uh, three children, so uh, I was doing these after they would go down uh, for sleep around 9 or 10, and then it was ending up being t a little too late, so I'm trying to juggle this uh, while they're at school, so it was actually like perfect timing. Yeah, I understand. I have three kids too, so... <laughs> so we're here to talk about the whistling skull which is a really awesome read i had the opportunity to read the first issue but this is going to kind of be like a whole different thing right uh you've already came out with uh six issues for uh jsa liberty files if i'm not mistaken so can you give us a little bit about uh kind of just how you got into that and uh you know what are your what you're doing to kind of separate it for the new uh edition coming out on zoop well we had uh we'd done it um uh, literally 10 years ago. The first issue came out like 10 years ago this month, uh, I think. Uh, and then the subsequent five issues were in 2013, um, which I don't even think I realized until we started going back and looking at the material. Um, but at the time it was, um, it's, uh, I don't know how in depth you want me to get, but it was a, um, it was a thing Tony Harris and I had pitched um, to Wildstorm, which was at the time, um, under the DC umbrella, I guess is how you mm -hmm. say it. And so at the time, Wildstorm was out in LA, um, which is where DC proper is now, but DC was in New York. And um, because Tony had done a book called Ex Machina with Brian K. Vaughn, which was very successful, um, he had a pretty good relationship with the Wildstorm guys. Um, and he actually approached me out of the blue with the title, which at the time was The Further Adventures of the Whistling Skull and Brickfist. Um, <laughs> sent me a... I was trying to do the math on this, and it was... It was like 2007, so I don't know what social media. It feels like Twitter, but I don't know. I don't anyway. Maybe um, MySpace. I don't. Boy, I can't. I can't imagine. But anyway, it was. It was. <laughs> it was a message completely out of the blue because I didn't know Tony. Um, Tony had done a book oh, ten years earlier with James Robinson called Starman at DC that was sort of the seminal influence on my thinking in terms of like superhero and genre comics when I was in college. And um, I had gotten to know James because I'd worked for Image, and um, but I hadn't hadn't yet met Tony. So getting a, a like just out of the blue, this message saying, "Hey, do you want to co-create this book together?" Um, and I mean, that, that was, all I had was a title, and I said, "Well, yeah, hell yeah, let's let's." <laughs> sounds crazy. So we built that together, um, got to know each other pretty well, um, and then pitched it to Wildstorm, which it, it wasn't necessarily always. You know, we didn't know for sure that's where it would go, but um, that was kind of that's where I wanted it, and I, and I think that ultimately that was the best place. So, but that was 2007, and we began slowly developing the book while he was finishing Ex Machina, and I was working on whatever things I was working on. Um, and then 2010, 2011, Wildstorm was put to past, put out to pasture. I mean, it was sort of what what actually happened is uh, DC took. Most of the stuff that was going on on the West Coast with Wildstorm switched over to doing the digital first and like digital mm -hmm. comics and stuff. And a lot of um, what they call special projects, which I did quite a few of, which are like advertising comics, basically. Um, like I did Gatorade and Subway and, uh, you know, all these That's things. a really cool thing to be a part of, though. I mean, uh, I, I, I can't even say I, I uh, remember when uh, places like that did comics. 
Well, they still actually do sometimes. Um, sometimes it's sometimes it was inserts in the in the comics. So like, mm-hmm. one of the first ones I did was a, like a six page Subway story. It was Subway, the NFL, and the Justice League. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So anyway, and it, it actually, I, I have some friends. It remains the favorite thing I've written that they that, that I've done. So I don't know what that says. But uh, <laughs> what, what what I didn't know when I did it was that it was going to appear in every DC book that month. So I didn't realize it was going to have, you know, 350,000 copies out there. And um, it was kind of, it was pretty tongue in cheek, obviously. Um, but yeah. it, it was funny, like the day the book came out, there were, there were reviews of the advertising comic. Um, like Rich Johnson at, Lion, at uh, um, Bleeding Cool did a, mm-hmm. a, <laughs> did like a little article about it. There was, it was crazy. And there were, because I kind of made fun of Aquaman a little. I mean, there was like an Aquaman fan site that, attacked it and there was, there was like a kid who did a youtube video review it was crazy i was like these are like the old hostess twinkie comics mm-hmm. i mean it was but um but yeah i did that I, and i actually like i did three with uh luciano vecchio luciano vecchio who's uh doing some uh, some cool stuff of his own now but he uh he and i did three con edison justice league like 20 page comics two of which were online in a uh, scrolling like mm-hmm. a side-scrolling format, and then the third of which was printed and published. Um, I distributed, I don't know, up in New York, I guess. We created a superhero for it and everything. Um, <laughs> so so cool. it is kind of weird there's like this, uh, you know, and then I did a Peyton Manning Gatorade comic book that, <laughs> that uh, oddly enough, I it was weird because uh, I, this, is, this is way out of what we're talking about, but I did that, and I remember going into like the convenience store and seeing... Mm-hmm. Gatorade had done like these special edition bottles with the uh, comic book tie-ins. So like we had done this book called uh, Peyton Manning, the sheriff. And uh, so they used the art and everything. And, and it was on these gates. It was kind of like we had done an advertising campaign for Gatorade mm-hmm. for a comic book rate, which <laughs> was um, did a Dwayne <laughs> Wade comic. And then, and I'll wrap it up But the, uh, the, the coolest thing was, um, I mean, cool. The thing my dad thought was the coolest was uh, I did a, a Justice League NBA inside the NBA, which are the, the hosts in the studio, uh, JLA team up mm-hmm. for All-Star Weekend for the NBA. No way. So it's, it's a separate comic book, which I've only seen once. Someone had me sign it once. Um, but uh, yeah, so we got notes from, so it was like Shaq and Charles Barkley <laughs> and uh, Ernie Johnson and uh, uh, Kenny Smith meets the justice league um so it was i mean what jack's a big guy that that would take what like the the whole entire page to draw him right like he's a giant (laughs) yeah and they would always have specific justice league members they wanted involved you know like cyborg would always be in there and uh Mm -hmm. and and all i remember is ernie ernie johnson is the desk host and he has a he always wears a bow tie and uh the only note we got from them them was that ernie johnson wanted a bow tie that would make him fly so <laughs> that was the only like story element I had to figure out. But anyway, they, what was cool is then like on inside the NBA, you know, during All-Star Weekend, they held it up and we're talking about it. And so, of course, my dad is like, oh, that's cool. Somebody's somebody's read that thing. But um, so that's how did it feel like, you know, coming up with that initial Subway uh, comic and, you know, thinking it's only going to be in, in like a, one or two books and then 300 Fifty thousand people yeah. read it. You get attacked by the Legion of Aquaman. Like, <laughs> how was that feeling? That had to have that been was like weird. That, that's where I realized. First of all, at the time, it just seemed like kind of like busy work to do in between doing anything else. Ben Abernathy was the editor, and he had asked me about 
like one of those phone calls where it's like, all right, listen to me. Now, this is a thing. Um, and that led me to doing these other things. I mean, I once actually got paid for developing a pitch for a NASCAR Justice League comic. <laughs> um, that one might have sold, who knows, 10 million copies. Um, but uh, yeah, it was weird because it, it did make me realize, granted, there was a lot of distribution, but you know, you do these other books that you put a lot of heart and soul into and they get well reviewed and everything. But there are more, you know, immediate responses to your Twinkie comic with the Justice League and, and Dominican <laughs> Sue fighting Black Manta for a sandwich, and it is what it is. But uh, but those, so that's what Wildstorm had been doing. He kind of did that, and then like I did a book uh, at Wildstorm waiting to do the skull called the um, Casey Blue Beyond Tomorrow, which was a self-contained creator-owned uh, kind of a teenage heroine fights. Um, <laughs> I forgot what the plot was. Um, like, there's a there's one dude I run into conventions all the time who's been tracking it down. He's a huge fan of it. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, and then so then finally, um, when when DC collapsed, or when Wildstorm collapsed, there were books that Wildstorm was publishing that got shelved. But we knew that they were going to do this book because they had invested in it, and Tony was one of the big names, and um. So Tony didn't want to do it at Vertigo, and that was his fear, because at the time we had younger kids, and he, he was like, you know, this would be nice if our kids could enjoy this, and we could hand it down to them. And uh, so he proposed adding these JSA DC-owned Elseworlds elements, which were carried. He, he and Dan Jolly had created um, a, a book called uh, The Liberty Files, JSA The Liberty Files, which I had to look. Like, the first one was published in 2000, so this is, so this is more... I, well, it was still 10 years after the fact, but it was kind of like an alternate world JSA. It was it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, and it must've been well-received because I've actually got a flash stat, like, you know, action mm -hmm. figure of Tony's design for that Elseworlds. Um, oh, wow. That is so cool. On my shelf, which is up, up with all my garbage. Up there. Um, but, uh, so he, he said, Hey, I'm going to ask DC if they'll, uh, let us, like roll the skull into this existing DC owned universe. And keep in mind, I already written all six issues of the book without them in it. And I was like, okay, there's no, there's no way DC is going to let us take our creator own thing and throw mm -hmm. there. But I don't know if it was I, Jim Lee and Dan DiDio and whoever had to make that call said, okay. So we had to restructure the contracts and they kind of said, you know, if, if you ever get the rights back, obviously you can't publish it with the DC owned stuff. And, um, and I, I just remember at the time thinking if that happens, just kind of trying to do the math in my head, how we could, um, cause we, we knew that if we got the rights back, we would want to reprint this initial story. Um, and because I had already written the, the six issues, what really, what happened was we kind of used it as a framing sequence, the mm -hmm. DC elements, and then it helped what Tony and Dan had done with the Liberty files helped inform the universe that the skull was a part of, like the the sort of legion of costumed adventurers out there. Um, but it was all stuff. It's hard, it was like stuff we created and then kind of grafted some of these elements yeah. onto. So it doesn't really exist anywhere beyond that book. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, and it, it got it got a good push. There was some some issues that happened around the time that didn't have anything to do with the book that. Um, it did really well out of the gate. It was well received. Um, I still remember Entertainment Entertainment Weekly did a 
a glowing review calling it one of the best books of the year. And oh my it was god, one those, it was one of those reviews where they understood what we were trying to do with the book. Because mm-hmm. some people read it, and it's a little, it's not complex necessarily, but the storytelling is uh, non-linear in some places, and it's yeah. it's very pulpy and noir. So it, you know, it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but the people who liked it really gravitated towards it. Um, I love the design of Skull so much. You know, like yeah, I know uh, it's, that's the, the... so Tony. Um, there's I've got a skull sticker there. It's, yeah, that, and, and like, Tony that, actually that, has a, a a suit like a mocked up costume with the full costume, but it's also got the full skull with the little steam whistle and everything. Yeah, he's, <laughs> it's in his studio. He's a he's an amazing maker. On top of you know, and he's got all these things i don't know when he finds time to do it but he anyway um hey uh, the, you you got to give yourself some credit too i read the first issue and your writing is chef kiss like the the cat uh you're like that's the ninth shot and i'm like oh my god that was good that was like such a smooth line <laughs> thanks yeah no yeah that i mean it seems natural but yeah that 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 uh that hit me now <laughs> see now in this retweak so what we've done to retweak it again we got the rights back mm-hmm. um uh, maybe, maybe I don't know, a year or two ago, I don't know, it's been maybe a year ago, I don't know, time compresses, especially with COVID, but, um, and I would occasionally contact Tony and be like, what are we, you know, we, what's, what can we do with this? Let's do something with it. I mean, you know, because we, we originally wanted to do like 40 issues at DC because the character, the Whistling Skull is a generational character. So mm-hmm. he's like, you know, whatever number in a line of continuing characters, right? And and the character Nigel, who is his sidekick, um, who is a grown man, but is sort of, uh, sort of his mental capacities are sort of closer to like a nine or 10 year old. So he mm-hmm. needs, uh, he needs somebody to help him out, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need, he's very much the heart of the story and he actually drives a lot of the action. And uh, I think he ends up probably being more capable in some ways than the skull, but it's not a giveaway to say that the previous whistling skull was his father and his father had seen the current whistling skull as a, as a kid on the street, kind of look after his son and make sure that he wasn't, you know, bullied and, and, uh, help him stand up for himself and stuff. So, um, the, the way it works is the previous whistling skull has a last will and Testament for who would replace him. And there's an organization, a group called Teagle and Sons. It's a law firm and, this this story takes place in during World War II, but mm-hmm. so there's a British law firm called Teagle and Sons, and they are in charge of handing down the mantle. And then they've got a group of sort of uh, advisors, and uh, like there's Doctor Moon who does psychological um, profiling, and then like this current skull has through mental mechanisms has sort of the combined memories of all the previous skulls, so that if he needs to access you know, if he's faced with a scimitar, he can access the, you know, the skull from 1912 in Afghanistan <laughs> dealing with, you know, so, yeah. um, so, so there are occasional flashbacks to the previous skulls and, and their adventures, which sort of sometimes throw them for a loop. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I was like, so we'd wanted, we basically wanted to tell the story of this skull, like from beginning to end, which would have been what those 40 issues were. And then you always have room for, you know, you can continue it from there or go back to the past um, with different versions. But I knew that we, obviously we had to do something with the DC stuff. Anyway, Tony was, <laughs> Tony's first, you know, he was like, put a pin on it, put a pin in it, we'll do something. And, and obviously always got, you know, multiple things going on, but, um, yeah, he, 
not all that long ago, um, he must have been talking to Zoop about either something else, or maybe they just asked him if he had a project. Um, he has a project called, called Round Eye that he'd actually crowdfunded quite a while ago that he's kind of been working on that he's that I think they might have approached him about, but he's he's actually he's found a publisher for that and he's got every all his ducks in a row for that take care of everything um um so i would guess in fact i know he immediately was like we got this other thing called the whistling skull <laughs> and um they're on board so i got contacted and asked about it um and we had to determine what we we're going to do with the the dc elements that do exist um we made it clear and Zoop made it clear. We all understood that we weren't going to do anything until it was all finished. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I've, uh, what I've, what we've done is kind of tweaked the DC elements into our own spin, which is funny because they were, they were actually Tony and Dan's spin on DC elements to begin with. So now we've kind of respun them in, uh, you know, in our own direction. And, uh, I don't know the best way to put it is to kind of uh, reconceptualize the universe um, with similar parameters. Um, because uh, one thing we did was we had opened it up to the idea that the skull is one of many costumed adventurers or mystery men that are out there. Mm -hmm. And at the center of the, of the wheel, um, that's what I'm calling it now. But at the time it was like, we, we used DC's 52 at the time because everything was 52. They were doing the new 52 and blah, blah, blah. 52 Earths. Um, so we were like, well, we'll call the group the 52 and assume there are 52 different crime fighting groups or organizations out there or whatever. Um, the idea existed before that, but we were like, we'll just graft the 52 onto that, right? Mm -hmm. So so now we've kind of reconceptualized how that exists in this group, uh, which is called the company for shorthand, which these other heroes were members of, is like at the center of it. And they sort of keep tabs on all these other characters in the universe and then it does two things. They can kind of keep an eye on what they're up to. And then also if they need assistance or guidance or they're in an area, you know, they can kind of pull them in a little bit. So that's, that's how that story that you read opens is with those JSA mm -hmm. characters and, and, and skull. So we've kind of flipped that around a little bit. So it's basically the same thing. Um, and then, uh, so really, it really, as I said, I had already written six issues and I rewrote them out of those elements. So now I've kind of washed those out. Uh, Tony reworked some of the art. Um, I re-lettered where it needed to be re-lettered to kind of shift the story. Not a lot had to be changed a lot. Um, and then Dave McKay, who had done the original color, who I I have always thought was perfect for the book. Uh, mm -hmm. Dave is, just his, his aesthetic worked perfectly. Um, but Dave, um, I, was I had talked to him about it and, and um, that we were doing it and he offered to kind of knock the color down a little bit because it he and tony had kind of thought it printed a little darker than we wanted it to so dave volunteered to kind of tweak it so that this time it you know it, it prints the way we want it to um was uh, was there any big changes that you wanted to change like script wise like having the opportunity to like go back after already you know having written six issues uh, with the opportunity to kind of just change whatever you wanted to change, was there any like things that you uh, changed like in that aspect? Not, not extensively, because the the story itself was kind of a the story was designed to sort of introduce the world and the rules of the mm -hmm. world, um, and it's you know it's very much tonally it's what I wanted it to be. It's yeah. pulpy and noir, and it's got these weird villains um, that Tony 
just designed the hell out of. Um, I mean, Tony's really good. So Tony has done a lot of his earlier work had been more photo referenced, uh, like Ex Machina, the book he did with Brian Vaughn. A lot of it's, I mean, you could tell it's Tony's artwork, but a lot of it is more real world looking photo referenced, which is fine. Um, I'm generally more of a, a fan of more um, stylized art. Uh, mm-hmm. You can push where you can push the, the boundaries a little bit. And so the skull is completely different from that. Uh, I mean, if you look at them both, you can tell it's Tony, but he really pushes um, physical elements and, you know, the bizarre stuff and the weirdness. I mean, one of the characters, basically there's this sort of uh, Nazi run carnival of freaks in this community. And um, the skull is called in to buy a, so he's got a network called the Skeleton, which is mm-hmm. uh, like a continuous network of associates throughout the world that aid him when he needs it. So one of the Skeleton members is in the Swiss village and there's this weird stuff going on. And um, But like one of the characters is a, we call him the Boneless. And he's basically a guy who is malleable. He can twist and grab <laughs> like Plastic Man kind of. So he's got no bones basically or they're... So, it's real hard. It would be real hard to do photorealistic versions of that. So this weird, um, if I had the, I was just looking at the PDF I put together and I, I was struck by how creepy and cool that character looks. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, um, so I, I guess the point is the story matched the art. Tony ran with it. We were completely copacetic. Um, it, it introduced the world in a way that I was comfortable with. Um, we had, we didn't have to change many of the parameters we had in mind anyway when we added the DC stuff, so there wasn't really a reason to do much of that. Um, the first thing we I did do is go through and figure out, okay, what, where is he now in his own universe without those elements? Um, and it still opens the door, obviously, for more stories, but also for other characters. Um, you know, if I, I mean, you know, if this if people responded to this and we did more of it, you could introduce another character, you know, mm-hmm. under their own you know, in a backup story or, or their own book or whatever, and kind of included in this universe. Um, and because we own the characters, I mean, I own a ton of stuff that I've done at Image uh, and other places. So there's no reason, you know, maybe down the line, you couldn't do a team up, you know? Uh, well, I, I, I just love uh, the fact that at any point you can do like a flashback, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. at any point you could flashback to whatever point of yeah. the timeline you want to. And I think that in itself has so much potential. Right, it, it does, it, It's yeah. such a mind-blowing concept. Like, when you told me about that, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, that's so cool. It's almost like the Matrix, but built inside you, like in your head, right. you know? Yeah, and it's cool because we do that a couple... We flash back at least two or three times, in, including... Um, because we can use it to... Uh, so, like, we use it to explain the relationship between the Skull lineage and a particular character. Mm-hmm. Because, like, he had met the previous Skull in World War II. And then we can flash all the way back, you know, 40 years earlier to another, you know, a skull in the desert dealing with some stuff. And because, again, because Tony just has, he designs the hell out of all these characters. So, you know, in this flashback, like this desert flashback is two or three pages. But I think if you just read that, you'd be like, well, now I want to know what's going on. You know, what's the yeah. <laughs> characters, you know, I mean, and, and that's a thing of mine as a writer that I really, really, really focus on is and more and more uh, the more i do is i don't want characters in the books no matter how long they appear on camera that aren't unique and interesting and you know i don't um i can't i've never responded why i'm 
I, I'm thinking of specific um, eras where you would have characters that all look the same, they all act the same. They're just they're they're the same character with the same purpose in the story. You know, a guy in a suit or a you know a, a gal in a short skirt. What you know, and and there's just nothing about them that stands out except they're mm -hmm. another version of that same character. Um, and I think the biggest influence on that is probably like, um, well, the most recent influence on that, and I know this is, this comes after the skull, but is, uh, like the Fargo TV series. Um, and in fact, the, the Coen brothers movies and, um, even Tarantino's movies. Yeah. They're just all these extra characters that are fascinating in their own right, which just makes the world that much richer. The second season of the Fargo TV show is one of my favorite seasons of TV every, but ever, but every character is so same same principle they when they were casting it they cast like uh there's a there's a mobster mm -hmm. he's in kansas city actually in the in the series and it's played by brad garrett who was the tall brother on everybody loves rain and the big right not not exactly maybe who you'd think about but he's perfect in that role but they didn't have to get a guy who you recognize and you know you knew was gonna you know attract attention in a role like that um, they could have just wrote it, written him as, but but that character becomes, you know, whenever he's on screen, you understand what his plight is, and he's very mm -hmm. weary and all this. So, uh, long answer, but um, so Tony does that so well that just doing those little flashbacks, um, like the desert scene is one I'm thinking of, but the the flashback to World War Two, World War One, he's got, I I don't believe I described this character, but it's like this, just looking at his art, I'm like, well, now I got to figure out who the hell that guy is. You know, even if we don't use him, I mean, it's like, what's going on there, you know? Um, and um, like one thing he did, I don't mind. This is at the time it was <laughs> at the time it was something to work around. But um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so he'd written the script and he was turning in the art. <clears throat> and so he would turn in the pencils and then uh, pencils, inks, and then they would all go to all, you know, me, Ben Abernathy was the editor. Uh, um, Christy Quinn was the associate editor, so we'd all get this in. Well, he had said, there's a, a villager named Johannes in the book who was one of the skeleton members. Just a villager. I mean, I didn't really describe him, I don't think, physically, because, you know, Tony can... So he walks into this inn, and Tony sends us the pages, and this character, jo Johannes, this normal villager, is like the invisible man from the 40s. He's got, like, bandages, and you can tell that he's invisible. <laughs> he's got a hat. And he like holds, he's got like an overcoat on and you can see there's a gap where you can't see his wrist between the gloves. And I'm like, and Ben Abernathy either emailed me or called me and he goes, okay, before I talk to Tony about this, what is this? And I'm like, I have no idea, you know? And and uh, we were like annoyed at first and then Tony's reaction was, I knew that would screw you guys, you know, but, but, and I know there are writers out there who would get all, you know, who would get really uptight about it and, you know, uh, but for me, it was like, okay, well, it fits the tone. So let's figure out how to work that into the universe and kind of, you know, again, enrich the universe. And so we, so I had to figure out, I had to kind of explain why he was this way and, you mm -hmm. know, what have you. So, um, well, it follows that, uh, you know, you said you wanted characters that really stood out and that is, it seems like it's a prime example, like case in point right there, you know, a, a normal looking villager and somehow he's invisible now. Like, <laughs> I, exactly. I mean, yeah. And when I, when I was going through and just kind of like I would crop panels out and just drop them on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. I'm like, well, I can always do a page with Johannes on it. And if, if he wasn't bandaged and invisible, then he would just be, you know, a dude in a Swiss hat or whatever. So, um, <laughs> and also he became, 
that helped me kind of figure out who he was. And so he mm -hmm. became a character that I could, you know, kind of feel, you know what I mean? So I, you know, yeah. So. No, that is awesome. For everyone watching, I have been dropping the link to the Zoop Camp, camp excuse me, campaign. Right here is the link once again. Be sure to sign up to be notified. This is going live today. And uh, you want to be sure to jump on that train right when it takes off. Uh, what type of tiers can we expect? You know, um, I, I guess like how much is the digital going to be? How much uh, physical in terms of uh, pricing? Yeah, I, you'd have, you'll have to go to it's the thing about the campaign is it's it's Tony and I, but it's very much Zoop. Mm. Uh, we're sort of <laughs> they're doing so much of the heavy lifting. And I mean, because neither Tony or I would do a, a crowdfunding campaign on our own right now, just because. We've, I've got a I've got an overdue campaign that has way too many moving parts, and it's it's uh, there are issues uh, that I can't even get into that I'm that I'm gonna wrap following mm -hmm. this. Um, but um, I don't want to. And the first one I had done was a book with um, friends, artists, writers Jeremy Hahn, Alex Grish, and Seth Peck called Bad Karma which was 200 page hardcover, a lot of creators involved, tons of moving pieces. And because we managed to make that work, uh, I guess I just assumed that we could make anything work. And I'm telling you, that, I don't know how we made that work you know, with all those people involved. And um, a lot of it was Jeremy. Jeremy and his, his wife, Lori, is a great, just she has her, she, she schedules and does stuff very well. And those two really made sure the train stayed on the track. So um, when Zoop, when I realized that Zoop would handle so much of this, um, mm -hmm. well, all of it, but, you know, so all we got to do is create the book. Uh, any extras or rewards are kind of focused on, you know, we'll do signed copies. Tony's doing some remarks, you know, little sketches in some yeah. books. Um, he's got a couple pieces that he's offering. Um, I don't know what the tiers are right now. I mean, you'd have to go when it goes live and see exactly. I was kind of looking down here to see they've, <clears throat> I mean, and, and I almost feel guilty because I've been wrapped up in uh, life and also uh, trying to get some other things done. Mm -hmm. And um, and we got the work done on it, but I feel like, you know, every time they pop up with all this stuff they're doing, I feel like, oh man, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm two hours late getting a PDF over to them that I promised. And they, in the meantime, they're like, well, here's blah, 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 all this stuff, you know, and um I told them early with this, you know, when we were talking about launch dates and stuff, I said, well, you, and they probably have learned this by now. They've been around for a little while, but you know, you really got to give creators hard deadlines, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, and it, it's not, it's not because people are lazy or drift off. It's just because you, you're always focused on so many things at once. And, uh, and when you have like multiple things that aren't done, you get to this point where you're like, leapfrogging the yeah, things yeah. and trying to, you know, tell people, you know, I'll have this tomorrow, I'll have, you know, and um, it's just, but luckily if any, anybody, Zoop, editors, writers, anybody who's dealt with comic creators, creative people is aware of that, you know, mm -hmm. um, the only time it gets to be a problem is when you're aware that editors are so aware of it, that you know that the deadline they give you isn't really the deadline. I mean, it gets to be like, it's just the one that gets you to, to get nudged to yeah. hit that second one. Yeah. <laughs> No, that is awesome. So you mentioned earlier, though, uh, I, you know, uh, aspirations potentially of taking this uh, 40 issues or, or much longer than six. Is that still going to be the case now that you two have gotten the IP rights back? Um, we'll uh, we'll see what we we'll see how this goes. Um, um, and actually, it doesn't this as long as this gets published, we're I mean, we really just want the book 
in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gonna be it, it's gonna be really nice. Um, Tony has just he just in fact finished. As I said, one of the reasons it hadn't gone live is they wanted to make sure that all the elements were in. So he just finished this painted cover, um, and he paints. It's not you know it's not digital. I mean, he's really had this uh, piece of art he's been working on. Um, so he finished that painting. Um, just. I just got an email that it's, you know, you just sent it over. Um, and it's big, it's like, it, it's been done, but it's not something, you can't put it on a flatbed scanner. I don't, I don't even honestly know how he would scan something like that. Yeah, when you were telling me about that backstage, I was like, I have, they, do they have just super huge, like, photocopiers? No, I don't know what he, that's a good question, because he's done, um, like, for a while he was doing, like, um, I went to Disney uh, with my family. I don't know, five years ago. And we, uh, uh, I was, it's one of those deals where I had like meetings with, you know, uh, Hollywood people. And so I was like, well, might as well bring the family out and, you know, they can, um, which, and by the way, we live in Kansas City and we drove to Disney. Don't, I, Maybe drive there and fly back if you ever try to do the same thing. I was going to say, you are ambitious. <laughs> I have spent a lot of time on the West Coast in Colorado, Colorado mm-hmm. and uh, up in the Northwest, but I've never driven there. Um, so it was cool because I've never, I mean, you know, I think I've been all over the place and I've been mm-hmm. to Vegas and Salt Lake City, but I've never driven through Utah and Arizona and just been sort of awestruck by how beautiful it was. But I still had three kids in a minivan, um, and we drove back through New Mexico, which was a bad idea. And then Texas. How, how, how many uh, how many hours uh, one way was oh, it? I don't know, hundreds. Oh, we drove we drove we drove out, stopped in uh, the mountains uh, in Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. um, it was April, I think. And we got hit with a snowstorm there, but we drove through. We were going to drive all the way through on the way back. And it was funny because my daughter uh, was in the back of the minivan with her headphones on. And she's like, she knows that she can snap. So she's very calm. And then we were like, it's late. We had family in Wichita, Kansas. So we were like, we're going to stop in Wichita. And as soon as she heard that, like a shriek let out. And I mean, I thought glass was going to break. She was freaking out um, because she was just in her head going, okay, we're almost home. And then, you know, we had this other delay. So... All I'm saying is I, I don't know about putting three kids in a minivan and driving to California and back. But uh, oh, I can only imagine wanting to go home. Like, no, we're stopping in Kansas. Like, oh, I know. She, yeah, she was. <laughs> she was not having it. She had a boyfriend. She went anyway. But uh, but I, that's a sidetrack. But when we went out there, we were in the Disney parks, and I hadn't realized, but I'm Tony had done all these um, like licensed Disney paintings. So they were like a haunted uh, mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, and. Um, I didn't know they existed, but then I realized, wow, they've got a lot of um, comic creators and and graphic artists doing these, you know. So <laughs> that is an answer to your question about uh, the scanner, because obviously he's done enough art yeah. to <laughs> reproduce it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, I don't know, so, but yeah, um, so he's just he's done this really cool painted cover, which is a, des- a design he's had around since we did the book originally, um, but mm-hmm. hadn't finished. Um, and um, so yeah, so it's the package is, is that you know it's reproduced the package. It's in the format we wanted to. We still have we still have the material. So you know if we if we did a series um, somewhere else, you know we would still have this material and could repackage it any way we wanted to. Uh, post it, you know, do it digitally again. Yeah. Um, 
and um or you know i mean if things work for zoop maybe do do a follow i mean we've, we've got another thing we've been kicking around for years that's <laughs> we're in a zoom call and he is telling the zoop guys We've got this other thing, and immediately I'm like, oh my God, because it's like the kind of thing that. <laughs> and Tony likes to tell you, you, tell people something just to see their reaction, you know, because mm -hmm. they're sometimes. And you're like the reserved guy. You're like, please don't, Tony, don't. <laughs> well, part of me is like, now we're going to have to explain, you know, I mean, and he'll be like, we got this idea, and then he'll just mention the craziest, you know, batshit nuts elements of it. Uh, and then people are always like, okay, what, well, you know, I mean, sounds awesome, you know, I mean, um, so. <laughs> He, he brings that up all the time. So I, I'm always like, okay, let me know. I mean, you know, you want um, to, it's the title. And he's like, we've mentioned it before. The title is Buffalo Monk. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, so who knows? I that mean, sounds awesome too. You guys have some awesome titles. I, I'm here for it. Well, that's, that's the thing I learned early with Tony. Um, like talking about his idea that, you know, we hey, add these DC elements. He's just kind of. His approach is just, I mean, he can be a, kind of a bull in a china shop sometimes. And, I, you know, I understand everybody doesn't relate well to it. But um, just that kind of throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. And mm -hmm. uh, um, I learned the first creator own book I did was Hawaiian Dick. And I learned that the title alone got me so much traction because I kind of resisted calling it that, even though it's not, you know, it's about a detective in the 50s. Um, but just immediately that title to this day attracts attention <laughs> yeah you know and, and if people don't understand that dick was slang for detective mm -hmm. at one time it really gets you know then you've got to explain they're like his name's dick i'm like well, i no, honestly I'm, never knew that now i'm thinking like is that why they called him dick tracy like detective tracy yeah, like yeah, it, it's been there the whole time he, he, he was named dick but that's that was a, a easy reference point for i got you so, um, yeah one of wc field's first movies is called the bank dick because he's a detective in a bank. And again, if you don't know, you're like, what? I mean, I downloaded um, the wrong movie. Yeah. Well, when, 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 well, and that's, yeah. So Google, Google alerts for Hawaiian Dick have always been interesting. Um, I had, I learned I had to combine, like put my name and stuff in there because, mm -hmm. you know, I would get like, <clears throat> I'd be like, well, how, who knew this many people were into Hawaiian porn? I mean, um, but, uh, and when the when Hawaiian Dick came out initially, Eric Stevenson was the PR and marketing guy at Image, and uh, I remember him telling me there was a shop somewhere in the Midwest that said, "Well, it's too bad. I like this book, but it's too bad I have to put it in my mature readers section because of the title." We're like, and Eric said, "Do you not let guys named Richard into the store unless they use the? I mean, it doesn't even. I mean, just stuff. Like, but anyway, so the point was when Tony says the further adventures of the Whistling Skull and Break Fist, when he says Buffalo Monk, I'm you know. I'm immediately intrigued, you know. And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I learned that with Hawaiian Dick, which I, I, re I was I was scared about that. And he, and when we've pitched that, it's been picked up by, you know, it's been optioned for film and and TV, um, TV and especially there was this mm -hmm. whole conversation about the title. What other title? And I was like, well, the, it's ridiculous. I mean, in my, yeah. opinion, I mean, I'm just overthinking <laughs> and worrying too much, you know. I mean. Because if you're worried about the title, but it's not an offensive title, then obviously that means it's attracted your attention enough, so mm -hmm. that it would probably attract someone else's attention. Um, no, that's a really good point. I, I, you know, I think that in itself, you know, is is a really nice form of marketing that people don't realize is having something a title like that that's going to catch your attention and and get stuck in your head. Titles are, yeah, I mean, titles are. People say titles are hard, and they are um, for new books. I'll usually, I'll have a list. I'll just, my brainstorming will just be throw every 
title, every uh, mm -hmm. related term, you know, just until I have this and then kind of shrink it and shrink it and then start. Um, sometimes the title hits immediately, but, um, you know, and then sometimes you're, you're, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, Battle Him was the second book I did at Image with Jeremy Hahn. And it's a World War II superhero thing. And we originally called it Anthem. And then Roy Thomas had published a Spanish language comic book called Anthem not all that long prior. And he, I think it maybe pitched it to Image and they didn't realize it or something because mm -hmm. I wouldn't have known. I mean, I you know, I, I don't, um, but Roy noticed. And um, so then, then it became, that title had come so easily that now, oh, you know, so then we came up with Battle Him and that was fine. What was funny is when I ran into Roy Thomas at a convention and I, um, because I thought, like, does he think we stole his title? It kind of feels like it. But he mm -hmm. and he was like, no, no, no. But he did say, oh, it was just kind of unusual. You know, I was like, where did you come up with that title? And I was like, well, I was trying to think of patriotic terms. I mean, it's kind of natural. Um, but he had a character in his book called Rocket's Red Glare. So I didn't, you know, I didn't steal all of his yeah. ideas. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so bad. You know, I mean, I, I just mentioned that because it's always a major especially as the years go on and mm -hmm. people, you know, remember something. Um, um, but yeah. Yeah. And then DC, like Casey blue was originally Kelly blue, but DC legal was nervous because there was a comic strip in the sixties called Kelly green. I, oh, I that mean, okay. it seems like I, such I, a fine line to walk. It's two different it's, colors, right? It's not even a line. I mean, there's, I mean, but you know, I guess that's their job and they have to do, but I yeah. mean, no, it was me. I just, I just remember, like, you go along with it, but you're like, that's absurd. It doesn't even yeah. make sense. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no, yeah. <laughs> um, well, we, we want to avoid confusion. Like, well, with who? You know, 65-year-old. <laughs> Are they going to be colorblind when they're reading this? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Miles to Go is the last book I did at Aftershock, um, <clears throat> which I have a copy of here. And it was originally, you know, and that's not the most unique title in the world, but it was originally Miles from Nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, which I named after a Cat Stevens song. And then it turns out there was a small press thing called, you know, and so they, we changed it to this. And, um, you know, it is what it is. I You want to be memorable, um, but you don't. There's been a trend recently with these kind of descriptive long, something is killing the children. And mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a bunch of those, you know, uh, and those are fine, but I end up getting those all jumbled and confused in my head when I see them in the shop. You know, I'm like, I can't remember which phrase is attached to which book I'm supposed to be checking out mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so, yeah, but no, yeah. And, and the other, and the last thing I'll say about that is, Hawaiian <laughs> and Dick, when it was first optioned for film, like 15 years ago now, but uh, it, Johnny Knoxville was attached to it. And this at, at the time, <laughs> they thought Johnny Knoxville was going to become, had the potential to become like a serious acting movie star. And and, and actually, he's a pretty good actor when he's been in things. But um, so they were giving him a big push and he had a lot of cachet. Jackass was huge. He had done some small movie that he had gotten good. But I'm telling you, when Johnny Knoxville is attached to a book called Hawaiian Dick that you're having option. I mean, the you've got like a million hits, with it, you know, I mean, you look every headline. I mean, they're like, you know, uh, you know, Knoxville, to, Knoxville grabs Dick, you know, I mean, just yeah, on, and yeah. on and on and on and on. And I was like, well, that was, that was, that was, uh, that oh, worked man. out even better than I planned. Johnny Knoxville. What a blast. That, that, that guy inspired me to jump off roofs into bushes when I was like, 
13 years old. <laughs> yeah, he probably inspired a lot of head trauma. Over yeah. <laughs> so um, we've come to uh, the end of the podcast. Let's begin wrapping things up. What's next for you? I know you said you had another campaign that you're uh, currently fulfilling right now. Yeah, there's a there's a way overdue uh, Hawaiian dick campaign called Great Big Hawaiian Dick. It's 100 pages, <laughs> uh, new material. Um, most of the material has been done a while. Some of it has had to have been farmed out to different creators because it didn't get done. Um, it's, um, but it, it's it's been out there long enough where it's like I want to finish the book and then kind of give backers the option of what they want to do. Um, and because that's been so long, I I haven't done any other Hawaiian Dick stuff. Um, uh, which was, if you don't know, Hawaiian Dick was the first book I'd kind of done. I did four series. Uh, it, it's always been, it's always had a pretty hardcore cult audience. It's been well received. The outside media has always been interested. Um, but like I had a publisher approach me about doing a new series um, that would have, you know, made us some money. But I was like, well, I can't until I get that wrapped. So when I do that, um, I want to then take all of the existing material, which would be this collection, plus uh, the four mini series, plus various backup stories and art and stuff. And I, I want to what I'd like to do is a couple is an omnibus, but it'd probably be two, maybe two in one slip cover omnibus, you know, and. Um, you know, a place like Zoop might be a good place to have that done. Um, I mean, I, I'm still kind of brainstorming, but I want to do the, I want to collect it all in chronological order as the stories go. Mm -hmm. They aren't all told in order. Um, then maybe do a soft cover, but then I've got, you know, down the road, I want to do, I've got an artist I've talked to about doing a future series that's set a little in the future with Hawaiian Dick and whatever. Um, you got you got to call it the uh, the Omni Dick instead of an in Omni Plus. <laughs> well, I mean the, the hardcover. It was uh, Tony Moore was the one who said, "Well, you've got to call that Great Big Hawaiian Dick." And I said, "Yeah, <laughs> I, guess, I guess you're right." You know. Yeah, when um, you said that, I was like, "Hold on." <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Um, yeah, because you know you start you just at a certain point you just stop. You're like, you just embrace it. Yeah. You know, I mean, the number of dick jokes I've heard over the years. It's to the point where anybody tells me one, they're like, I'll bet you've never heard that 700 times. But um, anyway, that's that's one thing. But um, an artist named Mac Chater, who's recently done some, he just did a Stranger Things uh, issue. Um, mm -hmm. He did some DC or some Marvel stuff. And he, he uh, had done a couple Dark Horse books. Um, he and I have been long developing a horror book uh, that we started pre-COVID that is going to be out scheduled to be out at the end of next summer. It's a political vampire uh, survivalist kind of Ooh. thing um, that we are pretty enthused about. And then he and I also, we've just kind of clicked uh, similar sensibilities and he's a terrific artist. We've also been working on kind of a midnight detective kind of thing that we've talked to a publisher about doing in um, like either individual hardcover mm -hmm. volumes, um, Sort of like some of the stuff Sean Phillips and Ed Brubaker have done at Image. Um, and uh, there's always other things in the works. Those are the two things that we've actually kind of got sort of lined so up right now. You um, said uh, you were a fan of like tongue-in-cheek uh, references. Uh, was the, the vampires uh, is like a uh, tongue-in-cheek reference to politicians being bloodsuckers? Well, I don't think there's anything tongue-in-cheek about that. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. It is... I, it's hard. I'll tell you why. That's another. When that book is solicited and dropped, I'd be glad to talk to you about it because it's, it is. We started that pre-COVID with mm -hmm. the political and the and 
U.S. just the state of the nation, and it's not it's not even it's not like you know we're attacking the right or you know it's it's I, I was very much cognizant of look everybody's a little absurd, so let's not you know let's not you know make paint somebody. Mm-hmm. We can paint one side as as you know worse than the other maybe, but you know everybody's got their issues, so it's not like a it's not like a, a hatchet job on you know it, it, it's very much about the story and the adventure, but the the elements of the story were all through COVID and then the end of the last presidency, all these things were happening that were crazier than we had put (laughs) stuff in the book. I mean, I was literally like, I mean, to give an example without spoiling or pointing fingers, I was like, well, I was trying to think how the country could very quickly sort of collapse, you know, I mean, be, and my, my thought was, well, if you shut the internet down for about a week and a half, this country would just fall apart completely. Yep. But even so, I'm like, I just don't know. And then COVID hits and people freak out. And within two weeks, we're in, you know, for a little bit there, it was like we were living in Mad Max or something. And I was like, yeah. oh, this, you really can't, can't find toilet freak paper, everybody can't out find bottled you know I mean? water. And, yeah. And I mean, and then you've got people storming the Capitol for political <laughs> reasons. And I'm like, I'm almost like, shit, now we got to ratchet it up a little I bit. Rewrite I, mean, this. I know. But I mean, I think people are going to read it and think, oh, you're just mimicking. I'm like, no, we. We thought this was like further than anything could really get. And then shit got crazy. So, um, so there, yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think we were that on the nose with the analogy, but um, there is definitely a relationship between vampires and politicians in the book. Um, And uh, anyway, it's, yeah, that, 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 like I said, that'll be, it hasn't been announced yet. So I don't want to spoil. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Publisher title and everything, but it's, uh, it's lined up. Uh, We're working on it now. And then uh, the other thing is, uh, a detective if it's the other thing is related to me literally Matt, mac and i were working on this vampire book and we were talking about doing a, kind of a high adventure thing and uh i love detective stories i think you can do endless interesting detective stories just by throwing unusual elements in and mm-hmm. so i, I said well, so you have any interest in doing like a really unique kind of dark detective story and uh and, and it was funny like the idea i, I sent him he keyed into immediately and he happened to have a notebook and this has happened multiple times full of similar ideas with titles that he threw out so it was that's what's great about working with creator owned comics independent comics um collaborators you know and and trust the whatever you have as a writer or you know if you've conceived something mm-hmm. if you really bring them on board and listen to what they have to say then you you know you do end up with something that hopefully is better with the two of you than it would have been with either of you. Um, so well, absolutely. So those are the next two things in line. And I'm sure there's, there's, there are other things, but I'm, I'm <laughs> ground zero on too many things right now. So, so uh, let's, let's finish things on a strong note. And I think I have one heck of a question uh, to ask. I know uh, backstage, I was telling you kind of maybe an idea for inspiration on how a writer or artist could get going, but I think we need to spin this uh, and really, really uh, utilize it. I mean, so for anyone out there having uh, trouble writing interesting characters, not their, their main characters, but even just like side characters, uh, characters in the background, what type of advice would you offer them to help them kind of get a little bit more creative with that? That's a good question. Um, I With main characters, I tend to, for me, um, I, I tend to create the situation and... Um, where they are as the story begins uh, what like you've got an idea about what obstacles they're gonna run into and what their goal is um and and this sounds almost this sounds almost like 
cheesy, but I do kind of then let them evolve in my head and kind of figure out who they are. Right. So that again, now keep in mind, I'm not, there are writers who are, um, who are really ironclad plotters and planners. You know, they, 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 every step of the way they've got it all ironed out and mapped out and they know everything for me. I kind of like the idea of having an idea where the story's going and what elements Mm -hmm. are going to be in it. And then if I know the character well enough, see how they get carried through that story. I mean, so things will change based on how I think this character would react and respond. And then they just become, you know, real in my head or what have you. Um, so there are times though, that I'll have a, a side character or a character I've introduced and it's not, if it doesn't click immediately, how they would respond to things, what their role in the story would be, then I know I don't really have an understanding of that character because it, it is a mistake. I firmly believe I completely believe and I'll and I can tell when it happens for somebody to say I need a character that's going to do all this and then you just create a character and have them go through all that without thinking about whether it reads as if something in character with Mm -hmm. what the character you've created would do like you just have them kind of just do the motions without like explaining why exactly like I created this character to do these things Mm -hmm. it should read like this character would do these things you know what I mean I created this character and he did these things. I mean, if you can think about the distinction, it, it's, and, and I've read, that's one reason work for hire, DC superhero books and stuff, Marvel books can be a little disconcerting is because it's always somebody's interpretation of a particular character. And if that character has these ironclad traits, you're just using those traits more than developing character. And understanding Which I actually them, right? think is a positive. I think they should do, I think, I would rather see Batman, Superman, whoever, I'd rather see like six issues of one creative team telling whatever story they want to tell and then just move on to somebody else telling whatever that, you know, then, Mm -hmm. then different artists and writers and editors trying to weave this narrative where it just gets, you know, convoluted. Um, Because I've seen books where I've really been invested in the characters and then a new creative team will come on board and have a whole different um, idea for the characters. And, and, and this, I'm thinking more in terms of, uh, I've got the example in my head. I just don't want to say it, but um, you know, there's like a writer who I really, I love his work. Um, he he did genre stuff, but it was really smart. He, in, he invented these characters or reinvented these characters, did a great run. Another writer came in and my impression was, wow, he just wants to kind of slap everybody in the face and shock you and kind of, you know, t- and, and it's, it's like, well, the reason I was invested initially was because of the way these characters have been presented. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just always, and it's a good exercise if you're so like miles to go is a good example this is a book where i try to make every character unique right so um there's a a guy who uh, interrogates her ex-husband right and so he's this big heavy guy over here mm-hmm. i really tried to figure out who he was and what his um uh how he would approach things and what his motivation was. And it made him really more engaging as he's kind of going through the motions, you know? Um, so I guess what I would say is a good exercise is uh, take the smallest character you've got, because this won't, this won't cost you anything if it doesn't work. Take a waitress or, uh, you know, a guy driving a cab or whatever that's incidental to the story, but they need to move the story from one place to the other. And invest some time in that character. Figure out why that character is doing what they're doing. Why is why is this? Like, for instance, you tell yourself, "Why I've got a waitress. 
who gives somebody <laughs> coffee. And that's all they do in the scene, but say they're in two or three panels. Well, then think, well, who is this waitress? Why is she doing this job? You know, what's her, what are her goals and motivations? Oh, she's a single mother. She's 40, divorced. She's tired. Well, then it informs everything else about the scene, even if it's only like, you know what I'm saying? And so you can, mm -hmm. you know, and you can communicate this to your artist and you don't have to tell them how to draw it. But if you, if you work well with, if you and your artist are on the same page, then they'll take that and create their version of what you've got in mind. And suddenly you've got this incidental character that hopefully has a little more life than just a waitress, you know? I mean, it's how in Hollywood, that's how actors and actresses make their mark, right? Or have tried to for years, you get a role as an extra where you're delivering mm -hmm. coffee, you know, and it's kind of a joke where they, you know, just give them the coffee, you know, and it's yeah. a few different things, but you've got to try to get noticed in that, right? So, um, so I would I would suggest something along those lines as an exercise when you're writing a story is to not let any character, when you say I need this here, I need you know I need a bellboy, I need this, I need that, I need a detective, I need a cop. Well, who's this cop? You know, I mean, spend some time on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I and I use Fargo, I use the Coens, and I use Tarantino as great examples. Um, there are look at their movies, films, the, the Fargo TV show, and you'll see these incidental characters that, um, I mean, think about if you've seen um, uh, No Country for Old Men, where yep. he, where he, the guy in the, uh, the little, sh the old time shop he goes into, and there's kind of a, an old man there who's sort of like deadpan and everything. And he's like, uh, you know, makes a deal with him or whatever. Uh, well, that character is unique and quirky and interesting enough to kind of make me care about it. If he's going to, you know, he's going to because he felt so uneasy, right? He, he, he's right, like, right. He, he, he's like, what do I want that quarter for? And he's like, put it in your pocket. There's going to be the most important quarter of your life. Right. I, yes, that insane, yeah. like, because just like the way you could tell how uneasy he was without, right. and you only spent five minutes with him. Right, and and they didn't cast, but they didn't cast somebody trying to act the hell out of it. They cast, mm -hmm. they, they were like, this guy is who this character is. Go be that character, and so you've got. It almost feels, but you remember that character in that scene more than just some, you know, some faceless extra or what have you. So, uh, um, but yeah, no, I, uh, yeah. So that, that would be my exercise advice. Um, you know, just really focus on, on uh, the background. Because with the that background, and man, and the most important rule when you're writing anything genre related, I think you can do anything with genre. By that, I mean, you know, detective stories, superhero stories. Um, that's kind of the lesson I, I was saying that I learned with Starman was that you could tell traditional super, like if you described it, you've got all the traditional elements, but the characters were real. The city was a character. Mm -hmm. The background characters rose and fell and had personalities and lives of their own. It, it was like a drama with superhero elements. Um, that you could get invested in both things. I think that's possible with genre. Um, so just just make sure, it doesn't matter what characters can or can't do or what crazy shit goes on, just make sure you understand whatever rules exist within your universe and you're consistent with that. So, you know, um, that's what I mentioned about the Whistling Skull. We've got these crazy characters that clearly are a step out of reality. Mm -hmm. So. As a reader, you've read this first story, you understand kind of where the boundaries are for this. You know, you, we, we introduced, there's a there's a time shift thing that's not like crazy way back in time. It's sort of an incremental jump in time, right? So I think if you're reading, you'll get a sense of, 
you're pushing the boundaries beyond reality, but you're not getting completely insane with it. So as long as you follow that as you go forward, it all becomes more believable because people understand the rules. If you break those rules and throw some shit at like if, a, uh, well, we could maybe use a dragon, but I don't know if there's something, <laughs> a spaceship pops. <laughs> yes. But, but I would have to, uh, if a dragon appeared in this book, we would try to explain the dragon mm -hmm. put it that way. It wouldn't just, you know, but like you wouldn't I, I have I love a, how you were like, well, okay, we could well, actually I, probably fit the dragon in. Like. Well, that's another fun exercise is go, well, this would never work and then go, well, how can we make it work? But like say a spaceship from, you know, the 30th century popping up all of a sudden would be like, well, wait a minute, you know, now you've, this, uh, this feels outside of the rules you've created. Mm -hmm. Now I don't, now I can't trust you, you know. Now who knows what's going to, you know, so, um, but I mean, yeah, it's not about being realistic. It, people think believable means it could really happen. That's not it at all. What's believable is that it could happen within the world you've created. And, you know, so that's well, that my is, advice. Yeah, that is perfect. Everyone watching right here is the link. Once again, this is launching later today. Be sure you're one of the first on the block to back this. If you can't back it, simply sharing it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you post is 100% free and word of mouth will help get this out as far as possible. We have J. Michael Miller joining us right at the end saying uh, he loves this cover. Yeah, this cover is gorgeous. I have uh, the cover right next to us um, as we chat. And yeah, this the new is cover? gorgeous. Uh, the one from Zoop. Yeah, so uh, you have a oh. uh, skull yeah, and he's like holding. Yeah, he's holding uh, um, the, the people like in his hands. Oh, no, that's a different one. No, that's okay, the yeah, original not, not, cover. Not, 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 not the new one then, no. All right, yeah, that's an original cover. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, wow, I got the cover. <laughs> but uh, it'll probably go <laughs> No, that, that, no the, the covers of the original series will be included. Uh, the JSA, JSA was only included in the first cover, but mm -hmm. we had already done a cover without them. So those original covers, which are gorgeous. I mean, they are some of my favorite pieces. They're, uh, but that cover in particular, I think, is it's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. No, absolutely. Everyone watching right there is the link. Once again, be sure to check it out. We are going to be wrapping it up. I hope you all have a lovely Tuesday. B. Claymore, thank you so much for swinging by, hanging Thanks, out with buddy. us. This was such an awesome, uh, awesome, awesome talk. Uh, any social media platforms you want to shout out real quick? Just, uh, I'm still always hanging around Twitter. Uh, you know, I try to link. I've, I've tried to combine stuff so that everything gets linked. Um, so just anything, Instagram, Facebook, if you want to follow, um, just B. Claymore. Everything's just B. Claymore, one word. Um, so um yeah twitter i'd be clear more facebook instagram um you know and trying to be mastodon trying to figure out all the you know the new I, you know i heard about mastodon i heard like it was like you have to like go to the bibbity boopity and and go to the server and i'm like i'm good there's too much i don't know because i'll tell you what i signed up <laughs> signed up for it and then got a notification and realized i had posted there in 2017 so i don't know i, I, was, I, was, I was literally like why am i getting i'm like what the hell i have no rec but so i don't know it's it I, whatever <laughs> I'm still at Twitter. That's all. So everyone, be sure to check out B Claymore on all those social media platforms. We will have those updated in the description below. I hope you all have a fantastic Tuesday, but most importantly, guys, keep it geekly.